welcome to The Author's Tale, presented by me, Stephanie Fruin. This is a bonus episode, giving you the opportunity to hear readings from two of Gavin Bishop's books. The first is from Teddy One-Eye, the autobiography of a teddy bear. We discuss this book and its delightful representation as being part of Gavin's autobiography in part six of Gavin's Tale, which was episode 10. The piece of music surrounding it is Tchaikovsky's Waltz of the Flowers. This was the theme used for the Australian radio serial David and Dawn and the Sea Fairies that Gavin used to listen to on the family radio as a child in Kingston. Chapter 14 Lyle Stockings This year it was decided there had been enough going on in Kingston. There had been parties for the coronation, dues at the pub to celebrate Everest, and Archie McCain had had a big three-course dinner for his 50th. Every man and his dog had been invited. To have a big bonfire with a guy as well as all the fireworks would be too much. Guy Fawkes Night, said the boy's dad, would be just as good with a few crackers down at the railway station. Mrs Hume was having afternoon tea with the boy's mother. I was on the floor behind the couch where B.B. had left me. I think it's a good idea to forget about a bonfire this year, said Mrs. Hume. I've asked the Foursquare in Lumsden to send up a few fireworks on the freight truck. That'll be enough. I've done the same, said the boy's mum. The kids get too excited. It won't hurt to have a quiet Guy Fawkes this year. But the Kingston kids were just as excited as every other year. In a scary sort of way, they liked being dwarfed by the mountain of fire down on the beach, and they liked the cheeky guy when he tried to escape. But most of all, they liked the fireworks. The Catherine Wheels, the Tom Thumbs, and the colourful ones, Mount Vesuvius, the flower pots, and the golden rain. A Guy Fox night without a bonfire and a guy, just this once would be okay, they supposed. Bangers and mash with cabbage from the garden, followed by junket and bottled plums, was gobbled up by the two boys so quickly it almost made my glass eye water to watch them. "'We're ready!' shouted the little boy as he dropped his spoon onto an empty plate. Their grandmother said nothing, but she looked at him in a way that said, "'You'll be ready when I say so.' The little boy saw the look. He slid off his chair and joined his big brother at clearing the table. "'Can we go now?' asked the older boy when they'd finished the dishes. His mother looked at the clock above the range. It won't be dark for ages yet, she said. Besides, have you done your homework? Mr. McLeod didn't give us any because of Guy Fawkes. Well, all right. We won't be able to stay late anyway, because your little brother will need to go to bed. Put your coat on, there'll be a cold wind. Can I take Teddy One Eye? asked B.B. At the mention of that name, his grandmother looked up. He'd be better at home, she said. B.B. bawled. But he likes fireworks. His mother let out a long sigh. You've already lost him once, and I'm not looking after him. The little boy put his coat on and tucked me under his arm. Just a minute, said the boy's grandmother. I can't be seen out wearing these old stockings. The old lady went into her room. She came back wearing her new Lyle stockings, the ones she kept for best. The grandmother, the mother, the two boys and I set off along the gravel at the side of the railway line towards the station. The boy's dad was already there. He had collected their bag of fireworks off the freight truck that afternoon. 
When he saw us coming, he lit a tom's thumb on his roll-your-own and threw it across the tracks. The boys shrieked with delight, but their grandmother stopped. She stood, swaying slightly, holding her walking stick in front of her with both hands. I think I might go back home, she said. You'll be okay. Come and sit in here out of the wind, said the boy's mother. She helped the old lady into the open-fronted railway station waiting room. You'll see everything from here. The boys were jumping up and down with excitement. Can I light something, can I? asked the little boy, swinging me backwards and forwards between his legs. Have you got some matches, said his father. No. I think that's your answer then, said his dad. The Humes arrived, walking down the road in a line like cows off to the milking shed. Then the bells scrambled across the tracks from the house by the lake. Other families trickled along. Everyone had bags of fireworks. They put them into a heap inside the station master's office. Grab some of these crackers, kids, said Mr. Bell. We'll keep the coloured ones till it gets dark. He handed out strings of tom-thumbs and double happies. Walter Hume, who was almost twelve, was put in charge of the matches. Single explosions followed by a series of bangs like a machine gun echoed around the railway station as the kids threw crackers at one another. The boy's grandmother peered through a pall of smoke as it drifted past the waiting room. Her eyes were wide, her mouth pursed to a slit. Even though the sun had almost set behind the Hector Mountains, the southern evening sky was still bright. The tops of the poplars at the edge of the lake, clipped by the last rays, were gleaming gold. Further down in the shadows, the spring green leaves fluttered like tiny flags in the cold breeze. Some of the smallest children were yawning. Someone here is asleep on his feet, said the boy's mother. She picked up her littlest boy and sat him on her hip. I hung from his hand, my feet almost touching the platform. Bibi's mum carried him into the waiting room and sat next to the grandmother. As the little boy fell asleep on her knee, his grip relaxed and I fell to the floor. I landed so that my glass eye looked out across the platform and my button eye peered up into the sky. Erratic explosions kept coming from behind us as the kids chased each other down the road toward the pub. In the meantime, the boy's father had sorted through the bags of fireworks and found three Catherine wheels. With a hammer and nails from the toolbox in the station master's office, he nailed them to the wall near the waiting room. Hey kids, Catherine wheel time! The kids came panting back along the road. Some of them took off their coats and threw them into the waiting room. Boy's father took the cigarette from his lips and held it to the twist of paper under the first of the three Catherine wheels on the wall. It fizzed and sparked and then the fire took hold. A torrent of stars shot out and forced the wheel to start spinning. Even in the dusky light, it was spectacular. The Catherine wheel whizzed round and round, faster and faster. Billions of tiny sparks flew into the air and onto the platform. The firework lit the young and old watching faces with equal intensity. Frown lines, weary eyes, weathered cheeks were wiped away. Parents looked as young as their children. And then the spinning wheel of sparks slowed, the light faded, and the little wizard dribbled to a stop. Parents looked like parents again. There was a burst of applause and cries of, Wow! and Gee! Whiz! It was getting darker. It would soon be dark enough to light the skyrockets, the flower pots, and the Roman candles. But there were two more Catherine wheels. The first one had been a big hit. Parents pushed their kids in front of them to get a better look. 
Boy's father reached forward once more with his cigarette. If one Catherine will cause that much excitement, imagine what two would do. He poked his cigarette under the next wheel and waited a few seconds before moving to the one beside it. The first one spluttered and spat and burst into life, a blur of blinding light. Then it flew off the nail and spun up into the air. It rivaled the sun with its brilliance, but it was in the air for only a moment before it fell onto the platform. On the ground it took off like a comet, spinning around the feet of the onlookers and into the waiting room. Instantly the room was as bright as midday. The wheel raced across the floor and hit the far wall. On impact it changed direction and made its way towards where I was lying on the floor. Still spinning madly and shooting millions of sparks, it hit my back, leapt into the air, jumped over my head and fell down in front of my face. But it didn't stop there. It sped towards the legs of the boy's grandmother. She struggled to her feet, but she was not quick enough. The Catherine wheel began to circle her legs as she tried to get out of its way. She lashed at it with her walking stick, but still it followed her. She hobbled out onto the platform while the fiery little wheel nipped at her legs like a yappy fox terrier. Then quite quickly, the wheel spent itself and collapsed in a tiny exhausted heap at her feet. She looked down at her best pair of Lyle stockings. They were full of holes. second reading is the picture book Katarina, which tells the true story of Gavin's great aunt and the treacherous journey she took in the 1860s from her Fano in the Waikato to Otago to join her Scottish husband. If you happen to have a copy of this book and want to read along, turn the page when you hear the chirp of the fantail. Katerina splashed and fluttered in the water like P.Y. Waka the fantail, her kaitiaki. She was excited because she had beaten her older brother Banjo in a race to the river. Usually he won and would shout, What took you so long, sis? Katerina, her brothers and sisters and dozens of cousins, uncles and aunts lived in a small kaina on the banks of the Waikato. As she grew up, her nanny Kuya taught her many things. How to cut the best flax for weaving kete and where to catch the fattest eels without a hook. Eel bones were always buried, never thrown back into the river, and flax scraps were returned to the plant to keep it happy. If these things were not done, the old people would growl and say, The ways of our tūpuna are tapu. Treat them with respect. Mrs. Ashwell, a Pākehā teacher at the mission school, taught Katarina how to sew and to speak and write English. Katarina was almost 18 when she met William, a young Scotsman. What does that Pākehā want around here, her mother Irahapete wanted to know. 
she was suspicious of the constant trickle of European settlers and traders coming up the river, enticed by the sight of the Waikato trading canoes arriving in Auckland stuffed with maize, potatoes and pigs. The land of the Waikato was obviously rich and fertile. But I love him, Mum, replied Katarina. Give him a chance. Before long, Irahapete grew to love William too, and in the spring of 1860, the young couple were married. Katarina was happy. There was a time and place for everything in the life on the river. Temarama, the moon, told the people of the Kaina when to plant crops, gather food, or to fish. Rongomatane and Haumiatiketike were bountiful providers, and so were the waters of the Waikato. Uenuku beamed down on them all through the mist after the rain. Katerina felt part of the land where her tupuna had lived and died for a thousand years. But William was worried. When their first baby was born, he said, there's going to be trouble if those Aucklanders keep coming down here looking for land. The Tainui can handle a bit of trouble, said Katarina. Even so, we should go away for a while, replied William. Down south, there's gold down there. We could get rich. You go. Baby and I will stay here, Katarina replied. You see if you can find something, but I warn you, it doesn't mean I will shift. William went south in search of gold and a new home. Months later, he wrote to say there was no gold for him at Tuapeka. He had a job, though, on a farm near the Scottish settlement of Fort Rose, in the far south of the South Island, Te Wai Punamu. You must go to Wiremu Ehine, said Irihapeti. You'll be all right down there in Murihiku away from these land squabbles, but always remember one thing. This is where your bones are. Katarina said nothing. It was hard for her without William, but it would be hard too without her Fano around her. On the day that she left, all of her brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts, in fact the entire hapu came to farewell her. Their tears fell into the Waikato. They all thought that they would never see Katarina again. One of the Tanifa in the river might even get her. Look after my Mokapuna, said Irahapeti. Give him lots of hugs and kisses from me. Kakite, Hairera, Hokimayano. A karanga from the women drifted across the water as the canoe slid away down the river towards the sea. At Onehunga on the Manako, Katarina found a small coastal trader with a spare berth, ready to leave for Murihiku the next day. Winter storms thrust the southbound cutter roughly along the coast. Throughout the long journey, Katarina held her baby tightly, thinking of home and thinking of William waiting for her in Fort Rose. I hope that Willie got my letter, she thought. This boat only goes as far as Bluff. That's a fair way from Fort Rose. The coastal star was forced by the southwest wind to shelter for one week in Akaroa and for another week in Dunedin. Because of the bad weather, William did not receive Katarina's letter 
and so she waited in bluff for many days. No one came to meet her. Well, I'll just have to walk there, she decided. I can't sit around here forever. So Katerina walked all day along the beach, pushing forward into the thin, cold wind. It clawed at her clothes and hair, and at baby Horney on her back. From the surf's edge, gulls rose up and screamed as she approached. The empty, weather-beaten coast was so different from the banks of the Waikato. When darkness fell, Katerina threw down her kete, fed her baby, and slumped into an exhausted sleep on a bed of pingao in a sand dune. The next day and night, she did the same. Early on the third morning, she reached the Waimahaka estate where William was working. Kia ora, Wiri, she called. Kua tai mai aho, and hone too. When William heard her, he rushed out of the cookhouse where he was eating breakfast and shouted, Katie, what are you doing here? I had no idea you two were coming so soon. Why didn't you write? Katerina laughed. William danced around, hugging his wife and son. I would have baked a cake and hide the pipe band if I'd known, he exclaimed with glee. In spite of William's warm welcome, Katerina was often moke-moke or lonely that first winter. The Campbells who owned the farm gave her a job cooking for the farmhands and she made many friends, but they all had white skin. No one spoke Māori, and she was called Catherine or Kate. Day after day it rained, and as Katerina wept for her whānau, the tears of Ranginui mingled with her own. Time passed, about a year, although it seemed like three. Katerina and William decided they needed a change from the hard farm work. When fire consumed their leaky tent home one day, they were suddenly without a place to live. But soon, the tiny two-roomed fairy house by the estuary, leased to them by the government, became their home, and William became the ferryman. In this little house, two more children were born. Katerina made a little extra money for the family by providing meals and sometimes accommodation to gold miners who were flocking to nearby Waituna, hoping to strike it rich. Her days were full and busy, but often at night when the house was asleep, thoughts of the Waikato would tumble into her head. Can't we go home for a visit, Wiri? she asked one evening. Mum would love to see her mokapuna. Too risky, replied William. Things are pretty bad up there, from what I hear. Are you worried about your mum? Aye, and all the others, I must go and see them, war or no war, said Katarina. Besides, it's time I took them a good kai of mutton birds. Right you are, Katie. I know how you feel. You go. But the wee ones should stay here with me. That November, the Waikato was as lush and green as ever. But it was bloodshed not crops of kumara or wheat that the Tainui were expecting in the coming months. Oi, you porangi thing, cried Irahapete when she saw her daughter arrive. It's bad times here. It's lovely to see you, Mokai, but you must go back down south straight away. 
Go home to your kids. Mum's right, sis, said Banjo. A toa left this morning to fight Grey's troops. The soldiers have wiped out Rangiriri, where Auntie Ranui lives, and they are on their way up the river towards here. You must get out while you can. Well, Katarina had no sooner arrived than she was kissing her hapu goodbye again. Two days were all she had before heading back the way she came. In Raglan, she stayed with her sister before catching a boat heading south. As it happened, Katerina was relieved to be back in Fort Rose with William and the children. Months went by and the birth of another baby kept her too busy to brood over troubles. But concern for her northern Fano quietly nagged at her, day and night. She sang songs of the Tupuna to put her mind at rest and told the older children stories of her childhood in the Waikato. They loved to hear how she could always beat Uncle Banjo in a race. With the arrival of every traveller, Katerina looked for word of her whanau, but there were never any messages or letters. Nothing. Only a few threads of news about fighting in the north from the Auckland newspapers. At night, the sight of Temarama gliding over the estuary above the ferry house would fill her heart with hope. But Rona, from her vantage point seeing all, would tell her nothing. One fine morning, after a month of rain, Katerina opened the front door to let the sun in. With it came a fantail, her kaitiaki. The children laughed to see the little bird inside, but Katerina was afraid. For her, a bird in the house was a sign of death. William had gone to bluff by boat the day before to get supplies. That night, they brought his body to her from the sea. Her tangi echoed amongst the little wooden houses of Fort Rose. She farewelled her husband, crying to her tūpuna, calling to Hine Nui Tepo. On the third day, Katarina buried William with his own people in the cemetery by the sea. Now I will go home for good, she said. She and her children were packed up and ready to leave when a letter arrived. It was from Banjo. Bad news, I'm afraid, sis, he wrote. Our land has been taken by the Pākehā. Mum's gone over to Poroporu. Auntie Putti, Uncle Tohi, Fetu, Tamaho, and all the rest have been sent packing all over the place. There's no home here for you now. Slowly, Katerina unpacked their bags. Well, kids, looks like we'll be staying here after all. Yippee, shouted the children. Fort Rose was, after all, the only home that they knew. Katerina now made Fort Rose her home too. She had to work very hard to look after the children, cooking for shearers in the summer and digging potatoes in the autumn. She was midwife to all the women in the district and other people's children often lived at her house. There's always enough in the pot for one more, she would say. When someone was sick, she would make them a thick brew of porridge to help them get better. Everyone grew to love her and called her Auntie Kate. As the years went by, 
Katerina changed many of her Māori ways, but she still planted her vegetables by the new moon. Her children spoke only English, but they knew she got hoha if any of them didn't respect tapu things or insulted Tangaroa by gathering pipi in the wrong month. A devout Anglican, she sang with gusto at St. Cyprian's every Sunday, but when the occasion was right, she was always keen to have some fun. At the Caledonian Club Social on Saturday night, she was the first to her feet for the ladies' excuse me, and some say that she could dance the legs off a wooden stool. One summer's day, about a week before Christmas, when Katarina was quite old, her brother Banjo arrived at her door. What took you so long, she asked. I suppose you have come to be beaten in another race. We thought you were dead, sis, he said. Not me, she said. I've been too busy looking after all my kids to die. And everyone else is too, it seems, said Banjo. See, you're still as cheeky as ever, replied Katerina. They laughed, hugging one another, and wept for those who had passed on. Katerina made some tea and some kai. Then she and Banjo sat on the back veranda, talking about when they were children in the Waikato. Katerina thought of her lost papakaina, of the old people and the old ways. Fort Rose was her home now, but the Waikato was still the land of her people. In the evenings that followed, with her mokapuna gathered around her, Katerina would recall the old whakatoki. Mate kaina tahi, ora kaina rua. A person is lucky indeed to have two homes rather than one. I hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode of The Author's Tale. Teddy One Eye was read by Robert Snow and Katarina was read by Zara Balara. A special thanks to Penguin Random House for permission to read from Gavin's books and to the New Zealand Department of Conservation for the recording of the fantail and birds of the New Zealand native bush. You can find out more about Gavin Bishop from his website, gavinbishop.com. The Author's Tale is produced and presented by me, Stephanie Fruin. It is available on most podcast platforms. It's engineered at Plains FM and is made with assistance from the Christchurch City Council and Creative Community Scheme. Don't forget to subscribe for future episodes, including bonus episodes like this, and for future author interviews.